0: Lord, thank you, you're good, and uh, we just pray that you would reveal that again today. And even that statement of three words, that God is good, Lord, that you're good, is often so hard for us to believe. So Lord, I'm asking for a fresh revelation of that as we look at your word this morning. Lord, and I just say, help. Help as I speak, and help as we listen to hear your voice and what it is that you're speaking to us today. Oh, Lord, you're good. Thank you so much. Thank you that you always are speaking. So your your friends, your sons, and your daughters here, we're listening, Lord. Amen. For thousands of years, people have been trying to figure out what God, or the gods, want. In 2013, my wife, Jade, and I took a trip to Indonesia. We spent two weeks on the island of Java and uh, with a group of harborites on a trip. And this these group of people had gone through our, the first half of our training school, our discipleship training school. So we took a trip to visit a team of people that we had that were living on the island of Java and looking to start uh, churches there. Now, if you know about Indonesia, it's the largest Muslim country in the world. And Java is, is a, uh, it's an island that is, is uh, Islam. It's Muslim. And uh, when we got there, we, one of the things that we did was we got to visit a very large mosque. I think it was one of the largest ones in the city that we were in. And uh, incredible structure, but one of the most amazing things was we actually got to witness, got to be, not really a part of, it, but to see from a balcony a worship service. You can see this place is just packed. This is in the middle of the day on like a, like a weekday service. They're all there, and uh, eventually, you know, they, they bow down together. They're all in these lines, and that's all men. There's another room off to the side that was much smaller that were, women were in there. Hundreds of these people, no shoes either. They all take their shoes off before they go in, kneeling down, bowing together. Now, Muslims follow the five pillars of Islam, which is what they believe God wants. The question is asked, what, is, what does Allah want from your life? It's to follow the five pillars. This next picture that you see up here, we took a trip um, After to visit my uncle, he lives on the island of Bali, which is a totally different culture. The island of Bali, the story kind of goes that as the the Muslims came through to conquer Indonesia and to convert people to Islam, the Balinese resisted to the point of death. So the Muslims are, are saying convert or be killed, and they're just killing them, killing them, killing them. And they would not, they would not convert. And so eventually, they actually gave up. And they stopped killing, and the island of Bali remains uh, Hindu to this day. Now it's so it's such a different and and shift when you go there because they're worshiping the gods, and what they think the gods want is this. This was a big parade that we just stumbled to onto one day. We were actually that week was a vacation week for my wife and I, and just visiting family that lived there. But these are all these, these, these large uh, plates of offerings that they offer to the gods. And if you know anything about uh, Hinduism, there's just multitudes of gods, and most of what you're doing is trying to appease them. They're trying to make them happy by giving them food and flowers. And all over the city, you'd find these little uh, boxes about this big, made of leaves, and they would have different little articles of food or flowers, and it's a little offering that you can buy to put outside your little household god or, you know, a different god in the region of your street or whatever. That's the answer to what the gods want. I want you to spend money on them and get these little offerings of food to feed them and flowers to fragrant, you know, incense and all these things. That's what the gods want. The question for us is, what does God, the God of the Bible, say that he really wants? What does God want from you? Maybe you've asked this question in in anger. God, what do you want from me? Frustration or a difficult place in your life. What do you want from me? Or maybe you've just wondered, you know, how can I live a life that, that is a life that God is kind of wanting me to live? When we read through the Bible, you see, you know, the Bible's got sacrifices in it. And the Bible's got all kinds of different rules that we are to follow or that we've seen people follow in different parts of the Bible. What is it that God really wants? We're starting a series today. We're calling it There's Good News and There's Good News. Which do you want to hear first? Anybody? Okay, we'll give you the good news first, and we're going to be walking through the book of Galatians for uh, today and then the next three weeks, so four weeks total. Now, the book of Galatians was written by the, the Apostle Paul, okay, or Saint Paul if you're Catholic, um, and he traveled all around, kind of you know the Middle East and uh, some parts of of, of uh, Europe and proclaimed this message about this new guy that came, Jesus, that he claimed to have personally met. And so one of those regions was what's modern-day Turkey and this area called Galatia, all right? So in your brain, you're thinking kind of like central Turkey. And there's some debate about exactly where these churches that Paul is writing to are in that region, but everyone pretty much agrees we're talking about Turkey here, okay? This is most likely uh, the earliest letter of Paul that we have in the Bible. So it's kind of like his rookie Bible writing debut here. Okay? Not to say that it's any less, you know, Bible. The situation that he's writing to is that there's some people that had come potentially from Jerusalem and were, and were teaching that the believers there had to do a bunch of stuff in addition to believing in Jesus in order to stay in the family of God or to, like, make it on Judgment Day. And the things that they were talking about, about what Jews had been doing for, you know, hundreds, if not a thousand years, getting circumcised, you know, celebrating different festivals and and holidays of the Jewish people. And Paul takes issue with this, which is really the reason that he writes this letter. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, you can look on the screen, you can close your eyes and listen as we're going to read this letter, whatever would help you kind of absorb this the best. So let's start in Galatians chapter 1. Okay, we're going to go through the first two chapters today, and I'm going to try to hit on the highlights because th- this is a very dense book. So this is, this is a little bit, uh, it's a lot to do in four weeks. This is kind of ambitious, okay? But we got the Holy Spirit, so we'll be good, all right? It's Galatians chapter 1, Okay. Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and this is also from all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, so a number of them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that? It's always grace, then peace, right? Remember that? From Advent, it's always grace, then peace. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Then he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What does God really want from people? We're asking the question of the God of the Bible. What does he want from us as people? Here's the good news. God wants relationship. But here's the good news. It's not about rules. Here's the good news. The God of the universe, his ultimate desire is a relationship with people. That God is relational to his core. And here's the good news. It's not about rules that we follow. So Paul is setting the stage in this introduction for this whole letter. He gives us a clue into what's happening in these churches. So one of the things that he does in the beginning is he establishes his authority. He says, I'm an apostle. And I wasn't even this by people, it was Jesus himself that appointed me to this. And this is important because his authority is being challenged in these churches. He's also writing with the support of others around him. He references these other brothers that are with him. He's trying to establish this thing to say, hey, because there's a major problem in these churches. And they may, these, these other people that are teaching these weird things, are challenging what Paul has taught. And from his language, it seems like it's a pretty big deal. He's calling for anyone that teaches a different gospel than what he preached to be accursed. And then he repeats it a second time. So all I'm trying to say is that there's a a big deal happening, and this message is really important, what he is trying to get across to these Galatians. So what he's going to do in this letter is set out to clarify what that message really is. And he starts by doing it right away. Right from the, the get-go, he summarizes his message in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Quick summary of his message is that Jesus came and he delivers us. As I mentioned before, it's always grace, then peace. We see that order here in the letter again. It's understanding this word grace, the goodness of God to us to forgive our sins that unlocks the peace of God for us to have peace between us and God, peace in our own soul, and peace between us and other people and the world. That's what Paul is talking about. Now, to tie this into this, this, this good news idea that I'm trying to work through this whole book, and I see across this that there's good news and that it's God wants a relationship. Paul's using relational language already. He's calling God our Father. Jesus is delivering us from evil and bringing us in. And it was the will of the Father to do that. He's brought us into this place. For many of us, we often think that God wants us to follow rules or to make sacrifices to him. I mean, and I'm talking about animals here, right? I'm talking about, you know, we lay down, you know, money or we, you know, we we give time to the church. That's what God really wants. Or if we have an understanding that God wants relationship, we think, well, but there's also some bad news. Here's a bunch of rules. Good luck. Or we think, God wants a relationship, but the bad news is he really just wants me to sacrifice things and give him stuff and break my back, and then he'll be happy about my life. But the amazing thing about the gospel that we're going to see in this is that there's good news. It wasn't called the gospel and the lame spool. There was just the good news, right? That's what the word gospel means. There was just, this is really good news. And that it's that God is the one that works on our behalf. He himself was the sacrifice. Jesus came to deliver us from this present evil age by giving himself, his very life. There's good news. God wants a relationship. But there's good news. It's not about rules. On Friday night, my family and I went to... um, one of our favorite restaurants in the area. It's called Flatbread Pizza. I went to the one in Georgetown, which is one of the closer ones. There's a new one in Salem. Jeremy Puzz did the tables for. They rock. They're really, they're beautiful. Okay. Good job, Jeremy. I was sitting next to Sam and the restaurant and um, we were having a little bit of a hard time. Sam is my three-year-old son. He was, you know, sticking his knife in the water and then he was hitting me with his fork, you know, and just kind of rolling around and, I'm trying to keep him combined. He's trying to crawl behind me, and I'm trying to pin him into the, you know, into the booth. You know. it, some of you are laughing because I'm sensing your experience, you've experienced the same dynamic. So I was just getting really frustrated with him. And I wasn't handling it very well. I just was kind of like, you know, you can't do that, and you can't do this, and this isn't, you know, take the knife out of the water, and you don't hit with a fork. That's, that's wrong. You can't do that. And Jade just looks at me and she's kind of like, you want to you switch seats? And I was like, No. I got this, you know. <laughs> she graciously asked me a second time, and I said, okay, you know, I can tell I'm not doing a very good job as dad right now, so we switched seats, and she was able to kind of distract, engage him and distract. And later that night, I just kind of talked about it with her, and she was like, Brian, he's lo- he was lonely. He was just lonely. He's just trying to, like, get your attention as you're scarfing down your pizza to get it while it's hot or whatever. He wanted... To play. And what was I doing? I was throwing down some rules. Because that's, you know, that's a lot of my personality, actually. I'm a a really good rule follower. That's that's always been my MO. I dot the I's, I cross the T's, someone gives me a rule, I'm like, okay, I can follow that, you know. What a picture that kids get it. What do they want? When they're there, they want to play it. When dad comes home, what's the first thing? Dad, will you play a game with me? Will you, will you have a, a real relationship of interaction with me? Will you give me some of your attention? A sense that is the heart of the God of the universe. We've lost it as we've gotten older, many of us. But he's planted it it even in little kids to know that this is what it's really about. So I'm going to pick up in the next section here and just start to really dive into this book. And I'm going to summarize kind of a huge chunk of chapter 1 and 2. All right? So what happens next in the letter is that Paul starts to do two things in this section. He establishes his authority and kind of the source of this message that he preaches to these these churches in Galatia. And then he brings up a situation from his past that he's going to use to say that this is kind of a similar situation to what you're now going through. And so he first does that. He begins this section. This is in verse 11. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man. Nor was I taught it, incredibly enough, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he goes through and kind of tells his stories, personal testimony of what happened in his life. Jesus appeared to him. He doesn't give all these specific details, but we read about it in the book of Acts. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus in a blinding light. He hears, he hears him saying, Paul, you know, why are you kicking against the goads? Stop persecuting my church. Who are you? I'm Jesus. Now you're blind. Go to this guy and let him pray for you, and he'll give you sight and tell you what to do next. And then Paul talks about in this letter, he talks about he goes away for three years into Arabia. And the, the, the gist of theologians is that was the time that Paul really received what he's talking about here, this revelation from Jesus, greater understanding of the gospel. And all this stuff that he writes about in all his letters that he, he's saying right here, he, didn't, he wasn't taught it by Peter or John, or any of these other guys that walked with Jesus on the earth, but God directly revealed it to him in this time that he was kind of set apart with God to learn all that God was teaching him. I mean, incredible. And then he, he, he starts to travel and preach the gospel, and then at one point, so after these three years, there's a period of 14 years, and at the end of that, he talks about how he goes to Jerusalem, and he presents this gospel that he's been preaching to the head honchos, Peter and John and James, so that these guys can say, okay, he says in this letter that he makes sure he hasn't labored in vain, that what he's been preaching is lining up with the dudes that walked with Jesus all those years ago, right? And they say, yeah, and just remember, to, just remember the poor. What you're preaching, keep going, man. Just don't forget about the poor. And he said, I was ready to do that too. So we're on the same page. He's saying all this just to tell these, these people in Galatia, hey, the message that I gave you was legit. I got it from Jesus himself. He appeared to me and taught me. Nobody else taught me this. And then when I conferred with the dudes that Jesus walked around with all those times, they're like the head of the church. They said it was good. So he's trying to tell them, don't believe all this other stuff. So the second thing that he does then in this section is he tells a story about when he was in Antioch. It's a place in North Africa. Peter was there as well. And what happened was some other people came and while they were there, Peter started to remove himself from eating with Gentiles. That's kind of a weird thing to do. Well, that's because Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. For Jews, uh, eating is, is almost like making a covenant with someone. It's like, it's like you're confirming that you have this, this intimate relationship. And so that was, that was taboo for anyone that was Jewish. But Paul, what Paul is saying is that, hey, that's not the deal anymore. When Jesus has come, he's separated. Sorry, he, he brought together what was separated. And so Paul confronts Peter and says, hey, you know, what are you, do, what are you doing here, man? This is, this is not what, what the gospel that I've been preaching and that you confirmed that I was preaching and that Jesus taught you. That's not what this is about about still observing these Jewish laws and forcing other people to do them. And if they don't, then you're removing yourself from relationship with them. So we're going to pick up at the end of, thanks for bearing with me with that, that summary. We're going to pick up now in chapter 2 at verse 14. And this is, Paul is about to confront Peter with this, with this message that he's saying. Okay? So he says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Meaning, uh, not that Gentiles are terrible, but, and everyone, everyone's a sinner, but meaning that they don't follow the law of Moses. Okay, that's what it's, he's saying there by Gentile sinners. meaning that they haven't been keeping the law, so now they're Gentile sinners also who aren't following the law. Are you tracking with that? He's saying, if our endeavor to be justified in Christ by faith, we too were found to be not keeping the law, is Christ then a servant of sin? In other words, Jesus is telling us to do things against the law, so he's he's telling us to sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Meaning if, you, if he goes back to this law that was destroyed essentially by Jesus, he's saying it was torn down, it was made obsolete. If I go back and rebuild that, then yes, I am a transgressor. For, though the law, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, the favor, the the free gift, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. All right. Dense section. I'm going to try to break this down, okay, in a few minutes here. The first major point that Paul makes is that no one will be in a right relationship with God or included in the family of God, however you want to say that, by practicing the works of the law. There's the first paragraph. Now, this is for for potentially two reasons why no one can be justified by the law. In other words, by, by doing these acts in the law of Moses or by extension okay, doing lots of good things to make God happy with you. There's two reasons that can happen. One, no one can keep the law of Moses perfectly. You can't be in a right relationship with God because you're always bound to fail at some point. And secondly, I would argue the law was actually never meant to, to justify people. It's an interesting question to ask the question, how did someone that lived back, you know, with the Israelites walking through the desert and coming to the promised land and, you know, doing all kinds of weird stuff against God. How was that person made right with God? How did they go to heaven? I guess if we don't want to say it, how did they become a, a real member in God's family forever? How did they make it on judgment day? Was it by keeping all the rules that were in the Old Testament? I don't think so. Because I think before that, God set it up. It was very clear that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, the law of Moses was never meant to make people right with God. It's a temporary band-aid the book of Hebrews describes to point people to God. That's what it says in the book of Hebrews. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year after year, make perfect. It can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered these sacrifices since the worshipers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, they're a reminder of sins every year For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Stay with me. One more, couple more lines here. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. God has not wanted those things. But a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Jesus, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. None of the blessings that are written of, and when someone kept this law in the Old Testament, none of the blessings in Deuteronomy 28 or Leviticus 26 said anything about their sins being forgiven or them having eternal life. They were all about staying in the land, interestingly enough. That if they kept these laws, their wives wouldn't miscarry, and they'd have lots of, you know, fruitful land and produce, and they, God would defend them against their enemies. But it doesn't say, oh yeah, and you'll get eternal life, and, you know, they will be justified on judgment day. That's not how it worked. And here's an idea that I propose to you. And just as you know, it's not out of left field. I encountered this while I was in seminary, which doesn't mean, okay, this is totally right. Okay, but I'm just saying, I'm not making this up. It wasn't my idea. A theologian named John Salehammer, who wrote a book called The Pentateuch's Narrative, talks about this idea, and I think it bears some weight. He argues that the law wasn't even God's first option for the people of Israel. He didn't want all those rules. In the book of Exodus, Initially, God says in chapter 19, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. He commands them to consecrate themselves for three days and then to come up the mountain. And the people refused. They said, God's voice is too scary and explains this. If you read through 19 and 20 of Exodus, and then you read Deuteronomy 5, it explains what is going on. It's a little bit of a confusing narrative. The people said, no, Moses. We've heard the voice of God and somehow lived, but we don't ever want to hear his voice again, lest we die. So you go up on the mountain and give us some rules, get some rules from God, and then we'll follow those things. And we'll tell, we'll do what you tell us to do, Moses. One, one guy that I was listening to in a class that I was taking this fall said, this was the worst moment in Israel's history. This was the the train wreck was right at this moment when they refused to be a kingdom of Abraham's. A, A whole nation of people that would draw near to God in what? In relationship to him. They refused and said, no, that was too scary. We don't want to hear God's voice anymore. And you know what? They never did again audibly until Jesus was baptized. Really interesting. So then what happens? God gives them some rules. Okay, okay, here's some rules. And then what happens? They sin with the golden calf. And so then God says, here's some more rules to try to hedge you in further so that you'll stop breaking commands. And then then at some point, I think it's in Leviticus, they, start, they make sacrifices to these goat idols. And then boom, here comes some more rules, right? It wasn't God's intent. His intent was re- always relationship, but the people refused it. So, in his grace, he didn't destroy them at the foot of Mount Sinai in all these different places. He gave them laws that were good, they were better than all the laws of the people around them. All of this is to say that Paul is trying to make the point don't go back to those rules, they were just a shadow. Now, if you've gotten lost in all this, like, long ago, faraway stuff, what does this mean to me? Well, the thing that undergirds all of this is still, he's still the same God. And what's the good news? That what he wants is a relationship. And the good news is that it's not about the rules. Now, he's specifically talking about these rules about Moses, but then he's he's talking the converse of that is a life of faith. It's a life of relationship. Faith is not just an object by itself. That's like saying, I trust. There has to be a blank. It's a relational word. God is calling us to put faith in a person. His name is Jesus. I could raise my son, both of them, to follow lots of rules. And they could do it really, really well. And then they could leave, and we would have potentially no relationship. That's a possibility, right? If, if, if I keep emphasizing rules and I'm not going for the heart, and I'm not going for the relationship, that could be a possibility for my family. I don't want that, okay? Just to qualify that, right? What would be the point of them keeping all of these rules without a relationship of trust that is built, right, through experiences of love and care? So the last paragraph that Paul talks about then here is really the good stuff. He says the works are not going to do it. Whether that's the works of Moses or just us trying to think we can earn something with God or like he's going to be pleased with us because of all the nice things we've done or not pleased of us because of all the bad things we've done. Right? Paul is saying, I died to the loss that I may live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is what God did. He's saying in this passage, he sent Jesus. And Jesus he repeats this again that he repeated in chapter 1. He gave himself for us so that we can have what? A relationship with him. Life in him. God loved and God gave. God made the sacrifice. God gave the sacrifice. Jesus kept the rules. Although he wasn't a huge fan of them all the time either. Because he was all about relationship. But he lived, what I'm saying when I said, I mean, he he lived a perfect life. And this is the response that this is calling us to. Is to have faith in a person the person of Jesus. And what happens as a result of that is that we are somehow crucified with Jesus and radically transformed into becoming a new person. He goes so far as to say that Christ lives in me. That's a really weird thing to say. It makes you think of like the movie Alien. That's not usually something that we think is all that good about something living inside of us, like a fungus or a tapeworm. But, but this is the language that Paul is using to try to describe that God is going for a relationship more intimate than anything that he can describe. Right? Like when a husband and wife come together, they're connected in an intimate way. He's saying even more than that, that Jesus is inside of us. His life is in us. He's in us. It's incredible. That is what God has desired. Right from the beginning of time is a relationship with you. And Paul says that now his life is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Have the band come back up. The response to this is asking ourselves the question if we really believe that about God's heart for you. That's the challenge. That God really, he really wants to just have a relationship with Brian. And all the ways that I've screwed up, even just as a parent, as I've already told you about. And all the ways in my past that I will not mention. Right? That God wants a relationship with us. Fundamentally, that's what this is all about. And the gospel says that the way we get that is not through doing good things. It's not through earning it. It's because Jesus did it. He rescues us and brings us into relationship if we will just trust him and open up to that relationship. It's amazingly simple, such that a child, my son, gets it. That it's about a relationship with God. So the band is going to play for a minute here and. Um, what I want to invite you to do is just to, just to stand up. We're going to sing two songs. We've got a, a, a good amount of time left here that I've kind of intentionally left at the end of this because I want you to engage with the Lord answering the question, Lord, what am I missing when it comes to relating to you? What about the gospel has not sunk into my heart about the fact that you're good and you love me and you're just wanting to relate to me? So I invite the, the people that are going to do some prayer ministry today to come forward. We've got a couple songs at the end and just some space for you to breathe a little bit today. If you want to journal, that's great. I encourage you, go pray for somebody else. Ask the Lord, hey, is there someone in this room you want me to go pray for? As Neil would say, let the church be the church today. Okay, we've got space for you to breathe. If you want prayer, come up here. Just know that, hey, there's good news. God wants relationship with you, deeper and better and more intimate and more joy-filled than, ever, than you've ever experienced before. That's what he wants for your life. So let's invite him in now. I want to share a couple words um, that our prayer team, just back in action, had for this morning. The first, and these are just specific. They may or may not jive with the message, but the first was just because of the snow today. So we want to have the picture of a blizzard. And that maybe the Lord has been speaking to you. It's time to slow down a little bit in life. If that's you. Come forward for prayer. Ask someone to pray for you. Uh, healing. Left wrist and a leg. If you've got pain in your left wrist or you got pain in your leg, come forward. We're going to pray for you. We believe God wants to heal that. The last picture was that Jesus was walking through these rows that you're sitting in and asking people to invite him into their situation. And his question was, are you going to invite me in? I think that goes with what we're talking about today. Are you going to invite me into a relationship? Are you going to invite me into this situation? Allow me to be God for you. So let me pray and then let's, let's just engage with the Lord. Lord, we just thank you that you want a relationship, not rule keepers. Because you are a God of love. The Bible goes so far as to say that God is love, that you're love, Lord. And you're good. And we just need to know that this morning. You're after relationship with us. You're after friendship. That's what you're about. So Holy Spirit, we just ask you to come right now and manifest the love of Jesus all around us right now, Lord. The heart of God for a relationship, a heart of love, a heart of a father, a heart of, of the one that would give to get us back. Thank you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, minister to us in Jesus' name.